Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody that understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast where we discuss contemporary issues in science, where we really focus upon agriculture and medicine and its convergence with biotechnology. The main idea is to talk about new technologies that can help people and help the planet. My name's Kevin Folta, and today we'll talk about some of the nuances and discussions of pesticides and some of the reasons we can't just make statements really painting everything with a broad brush. And our guest is someone I've wanted to have on for a long time, uh, Dr. John Tooker. He's an associate professor of entomology and an extension specialist at Pennsylvania State University in Happy Valley, Pennsylvania. Hi, John. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great. I've, I've been wanting to have you on for a long time because I've had the pleasure of seeing you present your work, and I've read your work online, both in its um, original publication form, but also just the many of the syntheses, like Nathaniel um, Johnson's uh, discussion with you. And all of it has been so important because it really underscores that for every action, there's an opposite or an equal reaction, and some of the things science has always taught us. And I really would love to discuss that with you today. So let's start with you. Um, what are some of your uh, your research interests? What's your background? Maybe um, something about your program and what does it mean to have an extension appointment? Sure. All right. Uh, so to have an extension appointment simply means that you work with the extension system in your state. So extension is part of most land-grant universities. And the point of extension is to extend the mission of the agricultural research um, to the citizens of the state. So at Penn State Extension, we work with um, Penn State uh, researchers, uh, some of who are the same people, and we try to reach out to the citizens of Pennsylvania and tell them what we're learning through our research. So as an extension specialist in the Department of Entomology, I have an appointment to work with uh, field and forage crop growers to help them with their in- insect management challenges. Um, my research program tries to inform what I can tell farmers, so we try to study 
um, at both a basic and applied level. Um, in, intera- we try to study interactions between plants and the things that like to eat plants. So basically insects, because we're entomologists. But I also study slugs because they're a big challenge for Pennsylvania farmers. And what we learn about those uh, interactions, we share with farmers through many um, discussions, meetings, face-to-face, you know, phone calls, anything that they, any way they can get a hold of me, they get a hold of me. Yeah, and, th- and that's kind of the joy of uh, working at a land-grant institution is it really does give us the opportunity, or at least the good folks um, are really uh, working with an extension eyeball and marrying their work in the laboratory to real needs, critical needs on the farm. And so that's that's why you're um, such a good guest because of the relevance of how the rubber hits the road. And we'll come back to that a little bit more towards the end. But I guess the work that's most been discussed around your uh, research and the things that you found have really centered around uh, neonics or neonicotinoid uh, seed coatings. So these are, um, well, better yet, why don't I let you describe what they are and why do farmers use them? Sure. So neonicotinoid insecticides are the most popular class of insecticides in the world. Uh, and they're introduced to the world around 1991 or so. Um, and they're particularly good at killing insects. So uh, many um, previous classes of insecticides kind of had broad toxicity and um, could influence the life of other or- types of organisms, but the neonicotinoid insecticides are very specific for insects, so they're excellent insecticides. Um, but they're very toxic, so they'll kill um, in- insects at a very, very low dose. Um, so they're used primarily as coatings on seeds. You can certainly buy products where you um, apply them to leaves, so foliar applications, um, you can certainly uh, apply them in other ways. Sometimes they're injected into trees. Um, they're actually used on animals, um, and they run systemically through the animal. Uh, they also run systemically through the plant. So they're a water-soluble insecticide um, that is very good in a lot of different um, application types. For farmers, they kind of use them inadvertently because they are coated on seeds. So if a farmer buys a bag of corn or soybean or canola or cottonseed, oftentimes, or usually, the insecticide comes pre-coated on the seed. So many farmers don't realize that they're buying insecticide-coated seeds, but indeed they are. And right now, these um, insecticide-coated seeds dominate the market. Uh, research that was headed up by a graduate student of mine, a former graduate student of mine named Meg Douglas, found that about uh, 80 to 100 percent of all the seeds in the United States are coated with insecticides, and close to 50% of soybeans are coated with these insecticides. And this is interesting because this type of information isn't being collected by the um, U.S. Environmental Protection Agency or the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So Maggie had to kind of ferret out this information by combining a couple data sets. But it's a pretty um, eye-opening statistic when you realize that almost all the corn planted in a country, which is in the ballpark of 100 million acres, has an insecticide coated on the seed. And oftentimes that insecticide isn't exactly necessary. It's just being used as an insurance plan should a pest show up. Yeah, and that was uh, my understanding was that that in the past you would have, well, some people would uh, really 
spray prophylactically. In many cases, that was the, well, still is the case. But in other cases, you know, it's with aerial spraying or some other type of application. But um, this allows farmers to have a primary uh, source of uh, of an insecticide within the plant. So as it germinates, that coating, that powder is in the soil, and uh, it's taken up by the plant. It's water soluble, so it moves into the plant, into the plant body, and then protects the plant from anything that chews on it. So is that right so far? Yeah, that's mostly right. But it, of course, just to um, um, focus on the detail, it's not protecting anything. Uh, it's not protected from anything that feeds upon it. Uh, it's just protected from insects. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah. The deer still love it. <laughs> still love, deer love corn. it. Groundhogs love it, and um, other types of organisms will eat fine. And within insects, there are some that aren't as susceptible. Um, these insecticides are awfully good against sucking insects, but many of the early season insects that might be attacking corn or soybeans are chewing insects. So things like caterpillars or some beetles, and they're oftentimes not as good against some of those types of pests. Okay, so that's not, good. And just 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 because I'm curious, is is this the same stuff that's in Frontline and other types of uh, flea and tick medications? Yes, okay. uh, Frontline is a neonicotinoid insecticide, also. Okay, so the and some of the other downsides that I've run across, um, you know, maybe include things like its environmental persistence that you know really have to be extremely careful around water. Um, what are some of the other um, disadvantages of this type of approach? Well, some of the disadvantages align well with some of the advantages. So the water solubility allows the compounds to be taken up by the vasculature of the plant, but it also allows them to be leached from fields. Um, so if they're, so let me, let me back up. Um, there have been estimates that anywhere from 2 to 20% of the amount of insecticide coated on an individual seed actually get taken up by that plant. So the inverse of that means that anywhere from 20 to 98% of the insecticide coated on an individual seed doesn't enter the plant and stays in the soil. And it can stay in the soil for a while, and in the soil it can influence um, the life cycles of insects that run across it. Um, there's some evidence that it influences earthworm behavior and even survivalship. Um, but it can also, if rain comes um, or irrigation is heavy, um, those insecticides can be leached from the field. And they can be carried um, through subsurface flow or also surface flow to agricultural streams, into ponds, then into rivers. Um, and some concentrations of these insecticides have been found to be quite high in agricultural areas. So yeah. what is not known, though, is what levels of insecticides in those waters is actually problematic. Um, researchers are starting to look at this question in the last couple of years. Uh, papers have come out. It seems that these levels in water um, are kind of higher than anyone expected them to be, and they're higher than the EPA um, regulations of allowed concentrations in water. Um, so they could be having kind of long-term impact on aquatic insect communities. And at an extreme, if you take out the aquatic insect community in these bodies of water, you'll influence things higher um, on the food chain. And there's some evidence coming out of the Netherlands that if you have high concentrations of neonicotinoids in water, then your insectivorous bird populations go down. And you could probably make similar connections to other parts of the food web, but that's just kind of one alarming um, study that came out in 2015. 
And it really boils back to why I really wanted to talk to you about this because it drives me nuts as somebody who communicates about science and tries to distill, you know, what what are genetics? What are the different chemicals used in production? And what are their relative risks and benefits? And, you know, you, you see a lot of molecules or a lot of chemistries and approaches which do have a better, um, at least what appears on the outside, to be a better uh, alternative to what was used in the past. But when you really just write a blank check and say, okay, this is better and uh, don't worry about it, which is what a lot of people do. I don't know that that's the correct way for us to be communicating what these are. These are compounds that kill insects. And that's what they do. That's what they're designed to do. And they do it well. And I think that's one of the, uh, some of the work that I've seen, you know, you talk about, um, you know, the uh, effects on insects and aquatic environments, but there's some, some data that just show very, very small amounts do have impacts on the uh, populations within aquatic environments and uh, just in rearranging who's there. And uh, even though it doesn't look like it's like this, you know, uh, pond Armageddon, you see shifts. And of course, those can accumulate in higher trophic levels. So this is a really important conversation. What are some of the, how exactly does this stuff work? Do you have a good mechanism for how it kills insects? Yeah, so um, neonicotinoids uh, influence or are bind to nicotinic acetylcholine receptors in insects. Um, normally, um, acetylcholine binds to those receptors, and that's what makes nerves fire. And then that acetylcholine is broken down by acetylcholine esterase, which is why the, um, the nerve signal doesn't persist forever. It's just a temporary depolarization. The nerve does its thing, and then the insect goes on with its life. But these compounds bind to that same receptor, and they make the nerve fire repeatedly, eventually causing uh, paralysis and death. Um, and these compounds are invisible to that acetylcholine esterase, so it doesn't get broken down. So it's not a temporary firing, but it's an ongoing event, and that's what eventually ends up killing the insect. And these compounds are very specific to insect nicotinic acetylcholine receptors, um, and they don't bind to mammalian um, acetylcholine receptors. So they're, they have a nice um, mammalian safety profile, um, which is one reason that they are so abundant. And they're starting to replace, or uh, they have been replacing, um, insecticides in uh, classes like the organophosphates, uh, the carbamates, and the pyrethroids, which have um, kind of a less benign influence on mammalian nervous systems. Yeah, those actually do target acetylcholine esterase for the most part. Is is that right? And they're indiscriminate for whether it's a insect or a other type of animal. Well, the different classes do uh, slightly different things, but broadly they influence the central nervous system and they are um, a little bit um, more broadly acting than the neonicotinoids are. Okay, well, this is great. So, so far we've really kind of framed the problem or framed the discussion around this idea of neonicotinoids and the one question I didn't ask you, uh, which you kind of alluded to, really files or really fits around this idea of genetically engineered crops, because really these things kind of are uh, conflated in everyday discussion, because they do kind of go hand in hand, right? So what? how do the two merge? The two merge um, in part because of the high cost of transgenic seed. So if we focus on corn for a second, you know, the average bag of seed, you know, 20 years ago was probably less than $200. 
um, closer to $100. But the average bag of corn seed these days is closer to $300, if, if not greater. And because of that higher cost, there's this um, sentiment that it should be protected at all costs. So let's put fungicides on there. Let's put insecticides on there that will protect the emerging corn seedling um, and help it get out of the ground. So protect it when it's in that most vulnerable stage. Um, and that's a sentiment that I, that I fully understand. Um, you're investing in this higher cost seed. Let's do all we can to protect it. But, but the problem is, is when you apply that over kind of a continental basis and you put this insecticide on almost every acre of corn grown in our country, the deployment is unlike we've ever seen before. So it's really the largest deployment of insecticide kind of in U.S. history, or so it seems to me, um, and it's really kind of overboard because only a fraction of those acres are at risk from infestations of the insects that these insecticides target. So a reasonable estimate of the percentage of acres that could be infested by the insects that are being targeted is probably close to 10%. Yet we're treating about 100% of the acres, um, so you can, you can understand there's a little bit of a disconnect there. And so there's uh, a wide-ranging conversation about um, neonicotinoids, and there's been a lot of attention focused on them because of their potential influence on, on honeybees and on the other pollinators. But I strongly believe that we wouldn't be having that discussion if we didn't treat nearly every acre of corn, most acres of soy, most acres of canola and cotton with these insecticides. So it's really a case where the technology has been overdeployed, and because it's been overdeployed, we see these other problems. The problems with pollinators are kind of too difficult to get into today, but there are some connections between these insecticides and pollinators. The water pollution thing is real, um, and there's some strong papers out there, but I also believe if we didn't deploy these as heavily, we wouldn't have the water pollution issue, and we wouldn't have the non-target issue in um, with aquatic communities, and we wouldn't have potential problems, as they showed in the Netherlands, with insectivorous bird populations. So you can see there's a whole range of issues that would almost go away or wouldn't exist if we didn't do this incredible deployment over space um, in the last... 10 years this has really ramped up well that's that's a really great introduction to this entire problem and so right now we'll take a brief break we'll take a couple minutes we're speaking with dr john tooker who's an associate professor uh, in uh, entomologist in the department of entomology and also an extension specialist at pennsylvania state university we're talking about neonicotinoids and some of their um, other effects and how they may relate to crop production uh, we'll be right back with Talking Biotech. Hi, everybody. This is Kevin Fulta. And this is Paul Vincelli. And we're here talking about the next generation of potential opportunities with the Talking Biotech podcast. And we have a very special invitation for you. <laughs> okay, so here's the deal. What we're looking for is to expand the opportunities of using this vehicle to expose more people to the opportunities within science communication. How do you build your brand by potentially hosting a Talking Biotech episode? Hosting a Talking Biotech episode accomplishes many things for me. One is I learn more about a topic that I'm interested in. And uh, two is that I develop some skills on science communication and do it in a way that's really quite friendly and interactive. So how you do it is really simple. All you need to do is identify someone you would like to talk to 
learn something about what they do, make the interview time to talk to them and have the conversation. It's really simple. You do that, send us the audio files, and I'll take care of the rest. And uh, I'll offer myself to mentor somebody who wants to, uh, you know, stick their toe in the water and try it out. Yeah. And in the days of standing up for science, there's no better way for you to stand up for the science you enjoy and that you would like to communicate to others than to share those important stories. And use this platform to talk about what you're interested in. So think about it. It's a uh, wonderful opportunity, and we're excited to extend it to you. And now back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And so we're back with the Talking Biotech Podcast, today talking about neonicotinoid pesticides and some of their other consequences of their use. And we're speaking with Dr. John Tooker, who's an associate professor and extension specialist at Pennsylvania State University. He's an expert in entomology, of course, but also has had some very interesting findings in the last few years with regards to some off-target effects and of neonicotinoids. And just some things for us to think about as we discuss how pesticides are used in agricultural contexts and helping us as science communicators develop some nuance around the topic, but maybe even see that nuance penetrate the field and maybe bring more nuance to the application of technologies. So, John, you know, a few years ago, um, it was fun to see you talk about slugs. And slugs don't come up in conversation too often. Um, I had to really think about, you know, even what these things are you know we used to have a um leave a tray of beer in the garden that would attract them <laughs> and all it would do would be attract like high school kids and so <laughs> but so at least you know they weren't interested in the vegetables anyway but no, in seriousness um what is the whole story about the slugs and the threats um that they pose and the crops that they attack sure so um Pennsylvania is in the Mid-Atlantic region. The Mid-Atlantic region um, gets a lot of rain um, compared to other parts of the country or some other parts of the country. Um, and we're, uh, most of the water that falls here runs to the Chesapeake Bay. So because of the Chesapeake Bay, there have been large efforts throughout the Mid-Atlantic to get farmers to move to no-till farming. So that is farming that doesn't use a plow. So those fields never get turned over like a traditional field would. Um, and when you go to no-till farming, it's a type of conservation farming to um, kind of conserve soil resources. So rather than having the topsoil erode and run down to the local stream and eventually being taken to a river and down to the Chesapeake Bay, we try to keep that topsoil in place by not tilling it. So that not tilling it makes it less subject to erosion. There are other benefits of no-till that I'm not going to kind of get into, but one of the downsides of no-till um, in the Mid-Atlantic is slugs. So slugs are mollusks. They're not insects, um, and they so they're not an entirely different phylum. Remember from your high school biology class that um, insects are arthropods, so that's their phylum, arthropoda, and then um, slugs, snails, clams, mussels, and all those things are... Um, are mollusks, so their phylum is mollusca. So if you want to kill an insect, an insect, you should use an insecticide. If you want to kill a mollusk, you should use a molluscicide. So these mollusks are very comfortable in stable habitats. So that's where you tend to see slugs. So you often find slugs in your backyard feeding on grass or weeds because your grass is very uh, is a very stable habitat. 
Um, they'll, they'll get into your gardens and they'll eat your vegetables because usually the area around your garden is grassy and they'll just kind of move in from the edge. In the mid-Atlantic area around the Chesapeake Bay, we have a lot of no-till fields. So those no-till fields and the adequate moisture we have foster slug populations. And slugs are herbivores. Um, they can also be carnivores and detritivores, and they can feed on almost anything they want. But in a cornfield where nothing else is green but beyond the corn, they'll really go to town on corn. They'll go to town on soybeans. They love alfalfa and small grains. They'll eat canola. Um, so they can really do a number on these growing crops. And the challenge is, is that slugs are active in the spring and the fall, which is the two times of year that we tend to be establishing crops. So in the spring, when corn or soybeans are coming out of the ground and they're vulnerable in that seedling stage, that's when slugs are most active, and that's when those crops are vulnerable to them. It also happens to be when the insecticides, those neonicotinoid seed coatings, are, are most concentrated in the plants. So slugs will start to feed upon those plants, but as mollusks, they're not susceptible to the neonicotinoid insecticides, but they get them in their bodies. And if they're in their bodies, anything that comes and eats the slugs then can be exposed to the insecticide. Okay. And our, our research found um, that control of slugs is decreased when they're feeding in a field grown with these neonicotinoid treated seeds because the, the insecticide goes from the plant to the slug, and then there are beneficial predators in fields that like to eat slugs, and if they run across a slug, they'll take a bite of it, but if the slug has the insecticide in it, those predators will be poisoned and often killed. So by knocking out that predator population, these toxic slugs, as we call them, actually free themselves, inadvertently free themselves from predation, and that allows their population to be a little bit stronger because nothing is keeping them in check. So the hypothesis from the field was that the slugs were taking up the neonics and becoming uh, uh, toxic to their predators. What kind of experiments did you and your student design to test that hypothesis? Sure. Well, this was work done by that same graduate student of mine, the former graduate student named Maggie Douglas. And she did some very simple uh, bioassays in the lab where she put soil in a small container, looks like a deli container that you might get potato salad in or something like that. She put a little bit of soil in the base and then put a soybean seedling, uh, sorry, a soybean seed in there. And then she put a slug in there and sometimes she put a predator in there. Um, and when the predator was in there with a, a soybean grown from an... So let me, let me start that again, Kevin. Sure, that sure. was terrible. So what Maggie Douglas did was she did these assays in the lab. Um, she put a little bit of soil in what looks like a deli container. Then she put a soybean seed in there. And sometimes we had treated soybean seeds. They had the insecticides on them. And sometimes we had untreated soybean seeds. And she put slugs in there and let them feed for a while, and they would feed on the soybean plant. And then she would take that slug and put it in a different container that, can, that had soil and throw what's called a ground beetle in there, too. So in that second case, we have a ground beetle, a slug, some soil in this plastic container, and it was kind of like a cage match. Who comes out alive? 
And when there's an untreated seed um, in the system, so in the previous container, the slug doesn't take up any insecticide, and the ground beetle attacks the slug, and the ground beetle does just fine. It has a nice snack, um, and it goes on living. But when there is an insecticide coated on that soybean seed, and then the slug feeds on it, and we take that slug and put it in a different container, so then we just have a slug isolated with a beetle, and that beetle attacks, that beetle can be poisoned because of the insecticide moving from the slug to the beetle. So we had to do this in two types of containers. So again, we had the container that had the plant and the slug and some soil. Um, and that isolated the effect of the plant on the slug. And then we take the slug out of there and put it in a different container and expose it to a predator. And that isolates the influence of the slug on the predator and takes the plant out of the equation. So there's no chance of getting the insecticide from the plant. We just have a, a container with some soil a slug, and a beetle. The only place the insecticide could come from is if it came from that slug. Yeah, that's a really well-designed experiment because you could think about ways, if you didn't use that second tier of test, how maybe the neonics that were in the soil, you know, diffusing from the uh, seed or something like that. So it's really cool that you basically make a slug that is a vector of the neurotoxin, the insect-specific neurotoxin. It's kind of cool. It's a really interesting. Uh, it's a really interesting experiment. But how does that um, translate to the field situation and some of the things you observed in your extension work? Right. So after um, Maggie got those results, then she deployed a field experiment to test whether the effects have any uh, influence on slug populations outside and um, and crop production. So to do that, she set up uh, a field experiment where she had, uh, if I remember right, this was in 2012, and it was a really rainy year. So slug populations were, were very strong um, at our research farm, and she set up plots that were grown from soybeans that had insecticides on the seed and also other plots that, insect that had no insecticides on the seed. And she went out and she quantified the slug populations. She characterized the amount of damage that slugs were uh, causing to plants in the different types of plots. She also captured uh, predators in those same plots and then did a lot of statistics to show that when you, the insecticide was present, there were more slugs where the insecticide was coated on the seeds, there were fewer predators, um, there were fewer soybean plants, and there was lower yield, all where you had the insecticide. But where you didn't have the insecticide, there were smaller populations of slugs, there were bigger populations of beetles, there were more plants per acre, and there was a significantly higher yield where we didn't have the insecticide. Okay, and so the, uh, so the, the really your, the results were translating. Did you ever um, bring slugs from the field into the lab just to t test to see if they, uh, either by, say, GCMS or by uh, feeding to predators, uh, the amounts that they're carrying? I mean, are they accumulating the neonics, or is it just the small amount that's transiently in them that is sufficient to kill a predator? We did a little bit of that work, um, and the answer is they do have a small amount of insecticides in them, but the key is that the neonics are so toxic. Um, so Maggie also tracked the amount of insecticide that moved between the trophic levels. Um, in our lab assays, about 97% of, there's about a 97% decrease in the amount of material going from the plant to the slug and then from the slug to the beetle. 
So this is not a bio, bioaccumulation effect um, of the insecticide. Bioaccumulation is when the amount of insecticide is kind of magnified on a per gram basis as you go up a food chain. That's what was found with DDT. Remember that DDT kind of bioaccumulated mm -hmm. um, in fish and then raptors ate the fish and that's what caused all the problems with um, DDT and, and birds of prey. Um, but that's not what we see. We see actually a strong reduction going between trophic levels. And the key is that neonicotinoids are so toxic that you just need a little bit in a slug for that amount of insecticide to influence um, the predators that might attack those slugs. Wow. So this, so all of this is really interesting. And I think the thesis is that it's not um, really appropriate to you know paint all of these things with a broad brush. And it's important for us to keep in mind these other nuances of, of trophic levels and other collateral effects of, uh, of these types of treatments. But when you look at all of this in a big pile, how do you look at this and think about alternatives that farmers could use for crop protection uh, using maybe neonics, but maybe using them more effectively? Or what are some other alternatives? Right. So if you take all, these, all this information together that we've accumulated over the past couple of years, it really um, screams to me that there should be a more... Uh, restrained deployment of the these types of insecticides and use them just where they're necessary. And this is the essential idea behind the concept of integrated pest management. So I'm a real strong proponent of integrated pest management. And integrated pest management is an idea that a lot of people have run across, um, but maybe they never had kind of formal education in integrated pest management. But this was an idea that was introduced in 1959 by a group of entomologists at University of California at Riverside. And it was introduced to avoid problems from overuse of insecticide. And some of those problems have to do with resistance. Some of them have to do with water pollution. Some of them have to do with residue on food crops. And some of them have to do with kind of these non-target effects. So insecticides killing beneficial species. And we're seeing all the same challenges with neonicotinoids. So we see resistance problems. Um, there have been uh, reports of resistance of pests to insecticides deployed as seed treatments. We're seeing this water pollution as we discussed. We've seen these non-target effects. Um, and it's kind of concerning. So one, a good way that we already know will work is to use integrated pest management. And that tells us to deploy these insecticides just where they're necessary. Um, and as we've kind of talked about previously um, in our conversation, these things are being deployed over millions of acres of the U.S. agricultural land, and oftentimes they're not necessary there. So a more of restrained or prudent deployment would be to assess kind of risk factors um, where the pest populations are most likely to arise and then deploy the insecticides there. But where we know they're unlikely to occur leave those fields without the insecticides, you're not leaving those fields at a very great risk because we know the chances of, insects, of the insects infesting those fields is low to begin with. So this is all um, very consistent with the kind of the tenets of IPM. So in a perfect world, we would return to that. But I think, um, I think that might be challenging given how much the agricultural industry really has enjoyed deploying neonics as seed coatings. 
Well, it's that, but it's also the uh, the fact that farmers have to protect a crop and to buy it on the seed rather than have to invest the you know time, labor, fuel, all the other goodies into actually applying. You know, plus scouting, um, as you mentioned earlier. You know, this is a good insurance policy, um, and and it's it's cheap and it works. And it versus having to actively add the expense and effort. And is this maybe something that as we start looking more at precision agriculture and robotics and other methods of monitoring and um, remote sensing of, you know, of insects and application of, uh, of crop protection, is there a real role for it there to help uh, aid in that IPM mission? Oh, without question. Yeah, so more research needs to be done kind of defining these risk factors, understanding where these pest populations are most likely to occur. And if it can be combined into some of this precision agriculture, that would be ideal. Um, The challenge that we've run across, though, is that um, many agricultural companies that sell seeds um, assume that all farmers need these products. Um, And one of the things I've run across from farmers is that if they want to try to use an untreated seed, they can have difficulties getting it. So there are many... um, kind of restrictions on the marketplace that don't give farmers the choice that they may want. So farmers in Pennsylvania that want to use untreated seed because they have a slug problem and they they can rely on their predator populations to largely control that slug problem, um, will run into resistance if they try to buy untreated seed from their seed dealer, Um, in part because the seed dealer doesn't have very much on hand, so it can be difficult to get. But with the, the, the trend in the agricultural industry is to put more things on seeds, not less. So this idea of um, being a bit more cautious about our deployment of insecticides or fungicides or whatever the compound is that's coated on the seed runs counter to the prevailing winds in agriculture, which is to put more and more on the seed, which will increase kind of farmer convenience because you don't need to worry about pest management as much if it's kind of coming on the seed or in the seed with many of the, the BT traits. Yeah, that sounds like uh, that sounds like it. But is it when you add it constantly to the seed and you're always putting this stuff in the environment and it's persistent, how much of a risk of resistance do we really have with this kind of strategy? So that's kind of unclear. Um, the thinking is is that the risk of resistance is somewhat low because you're only putting out the insecticide at the beginning of the season, and it's only active for a couple weeks. Um, So the selection pressure would seem to be low. Um, But we have already had cases of resistance. Um, The the best studied case is in cotton uh, by an insect pest called tobacco thrips. Um, And so it's pretty well documented that tobacco thrips is grown resistant to neonicotinoid seed treatments in cotton, because of continual use over the past 15 or so years. So I cannot believe that that's going to be the only case, and it's likely to occur in corn and in soybeans and canola with various pest species as these things continue to be used um, in the spring of every year. So if you can leave us with a parting message and maybe some kind of distill this entire thing down to a couple sentences, what is really your best thinking and guidance other than we need more funding to, uh, <laughs> well, actually, that's a great message, you know, more funding to uncover and really um, delve into these nuances? 
Sure. So more funding would be beneficial because we'd have more researchers being able to uh, study these types of questions. But in my mind, we already have many of the answers. And the answers come down to integrated pest management. So deploying the insecticide where the risk is the highest and not deploying it elsewhere. In my mind, you are kind of setting yourself up for disappointment when you put a pesticide everywhere it can possibly be put because you're going to run into all these non-target effects, these environmental pollution challenges. Um, but we know that these insecticides aren't necessary on 100% of the acres. The hard part is figuring out which 10% or which 20%, whatever the number is, really should um, receive these insecticides so the insecticides have the most return on the investment. That's where kind of research needs to be done to define those risk factors to understand the nuance of this deployment. Um, in the Mid-Atlantic, I tell growers all the time that if they're managing their fields for slug problems, get the insecticide out of the field because they're not helping there. So at least on a regional scale, we know that if fields are prone to slug populations, the insecticide should be removed so the predators can play a bigger part in the system and help with slug control. For the rest of the country that don't suffer from slugs, the challenge might be a little bit harder to define why these insecticides um, are problematic. And then it comes to these issues of, of water pollution and wildlife populations that is really part of a, a bigger discussion on the influence of agriculture on, on the whole ecosystem. Well, thank you so much, John. You know, I, I, the thing I just was so happy to, the reason I wanted to talk to you and why I'm not disappointed at all with the discussion today is that so often these uh, discussions fall into these silos of black and white. And I think it's so important for us as scientists to realize the complexities of that gray area between. But also it's important for us to be communicating that because uh, the funding and the resources and the interest and even looking further into this is predicated upon our stepping into these discussions and identifying these needs. So if more people wanted to learn about what you do and, uh, and, and about this gray area, where could they learn more about it? So the Pennsylvania State University has a couple websites that they host for us. Uh, we have a research website uh, in the Department of Entomology at Penn State. So if someone was just to um, do a Google search on Tooker and Penn State University, that research site comes up fairly quickly. And I have a companion uh, extension entomology website where I um, lay out some recommendations um, on how to control various insect pests. And that's all linked within these same websites. They're all kind of interconnected. So if you find the, the Tooker lab at Penn State, you'll be able to find those websites and get some of that information. Okay, and I'll put links on the uh, Talking Biotech podcast website. My Twitter, at JF Tooker. So the, the Twitter username is at JF Tooker, T-O-O-K-E-R, for anyone looking to follow you on that social media network. Well, John, thank you so much for joining me today on the Talking Biotech Podcast. I really appreciate it, and please keep me posted of future developments. This is a really interesting story. All right, Kevin, thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast 
and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.